0: How to know God's will. Last session. How to know God's will for my relationships and marriage. Some principles. Eyes wide open before marriage. Half shut after. Commitment is a bigger issue than match. Match does matter. Work on being the right partner. Work on being the right partner. And number five. School is a great place to meet someone. It can be pretty stressful dating while you're in school. Okay. And... Um... Let's pray to start our session. Father, thank you so much that we can spend time together at iShare, learning, worshiping, listening to your word, gaining things that will help us in October and February and April and all throughout the year. So please be with us. Help us to understand and to apply your word to our lives. We humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge our need of you uh, to understand the Bible properly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. (coughs) Are you feeling indecisive? Have you ever been indecisive or felt indecisive? My wife says that she married me because I'm decisive. She's not here. I don't see her. She's somewhere. I've been using my wife as an illustration for the last two sessions. (laughs) As I mentioned before, the average college student changes his major at least three times. Eighty percent of all college students change their major at least once. If you have done that, you are normal. What do I do? How do I know God's will for my career and ministry? It can be overwhelming. There are so many things you can do. And after John Bradshaw's, Pastor John Bradshaw's message this morning, do you see what you're going to do in a little different light? I hope so. That was such a blessing. It doesn't matter what we do. We are going to be serving God number one, whether it's full-time ministry or not. So let's just look at some principles we're going to just the outline of this we're going to look at at, um, a few principles to know uh, God's will for my career in ministry six different principles and then we're going to look at a time in Jesus's life when he made a completely unexpected decision and why he did that okay number one God has a place for us Christ object lessons 326 this this blows my mind okay Not more surely, okay, we've got to look at the syntax and the grammar here because it can be confusing. Not more surely is the place prepared for us in the heavenly mansions than is the special place designated on earth where we are to work for God. Do you have a mansion in heaven? Yes. Do you have a special place on earth designated where you are to work for God? Yes. Yes, Just as much. Not more surely means just as much. (laughs) Just as much as you have a mansion... So you have a special place designated on earth where you are to work for God. Wow. Are there lots of places you could be a blessing? Yes. This says there's a special place where we are to work for God. Wow. God has a place for us. In Jesus' life, where was that place? Anybody know where he, the place where he spent the most time? Where did Jesus spend most of his life? Was Jesus following God's will? He spent most of his life in the carpenter shop. That's where he spent most of his place. That was the special place designated on earth where he was to work for God. He was at home for 89.5% of his life. I just did the math before this session. 89.5% of his life, he was at home working as a carpenter, being a boy, and growing up and learning to carry responsibilities and doing chores. Life is made up of stuff like washing dishes. That's what Jesus did. That was the special place on earth designated where he was to work for God. 89, only three and a half years did he have his super powerful public ministry. Education, page 267. He who came from heaven to be our example spent nearly 30 years of his life in common mechanical labor. Amazing. So God has a place for us. Let's go to number two. God-given talents and abilities point in the direction of our career and ministry. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 4. first peter chapter 4 verse 10 as each one has received a gift even so minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god look carefully at that verse as each one has received a gift so minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if I have received eight units of gift X, I'm supposed to minister what? Eight units of gift X. Right? Is that what this says? So as you've received a gift, even so minister also the same. So if you have been given a beautiful singing voice, try to max it out. Right? Right? Use, use all, as many of your gifts as you can for ministry. Let's look at the next verse. If anyone speaks, let him speak as of the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, so again, if I've, received, if I've received a gift, it needs to be put into practice. I see this all the time with young people. They have gifts, they have abilities, but for whatever reason, the clutch is not left out. Anybody here drive stick? If you can drive stick, raise your hand. Ah, oh, it's not bad. Okay, so you know if you've got the clutch pushed in, you just, you're just hitting the gas and nothing happens. When you let that clutch out, it engages and stuff happens. So that's the, that's the concept. So you've been given g- gifts, but, but in order to get them to actually in play, in ministry, that's the, that's the challenge. So this is what the Bible has, teaches right here, is that if you've received a gift, use it. Use it. God-given talents and abilities point in the direction of our career and ministry. When I was in school, I remember I walked off into the woods one day. It was Sunday afternoon, and I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. What do you want for my life? Um, What should I do? I don't know. What's your will for my career? What's your will for my life? What's your will for my ministry? What's your will? I want to know God's will. You know, one of those frustrating talks with the Lord. And I was studying my Bible, and I, I came across this verse, and I meditated on this verse. First Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. I meditated on this. I remember being in the woods with leaves and deciduous trees. And I remember meditating on this verse, and it became so real to me that I should make sure I use all my gifts as much as I can for the Lord. And that had a really a, a deep effect on me. So I walked back to campus where I was going to school, and it was a week of prayer that night, and it was the f- opening night. The opening meeting. First night. Pastor uh, Willard Santee. everybody knows him. And he got up and he started preaching. And you know what his verse was? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And I about got, jumped out of my seat and he preached on this very same concept that I had just came, come across in the Bible, praying. It had a deep impact on me. So God-given talents and abilities point in the direction of our career and ministry. Let's look at Education 233, the natural aptitudes indicate the direction of the life work. Do you have a natural aptitude for something? Now, this can be abused if you have a natural aptitude for robbing banks. It doesn't mean it should be your life work, Okay. Okay, So uh, uh, this is not a a catch-all statement. But generally speaking, the natural aptitudes do indicate the direction of the life work. And um, don't forget, though, don't forget, that doesn't mean that it has to be an exact fit, okay? Those who, this is Help and Daily Living, page 44, those who wish to prove an exact fit without the trouble of adaptation or training are not the ones whom God calls to work in his cause. In other words, this is a balancing quote that says, if you get called to a certain thing, you're like, you know, that's not a perfect fit. That doesn't mean it's not necessarily, you know, there are, some, there's, there are many things in all of our jobs, those of us who are in ministry, that are not a perfect fit. There are some things in my job, it's not natural. I have people around me who take care of stuff that I'm not good at. Okay, so that that, there still is some adaptation that is called for. Let's go on to number three. This is an important one. Number three, self development is a top priority. Sons and daughters of God, 313, our first duty, our what? Number one, our first duty toward God and our first duty toward our fellow beings is that of self-development. Every faculty with which the Creator has endowed us should be cultivated to the highest degree of perfection, that we may make a lot of money. Oh, wait a minute, that's not what that says. That we may be able to do the greatest amount of good of which we are capable. You see that? Self-development. Are you developing yourself? Are you placing yourself in situations where you can be educated and mentored When I was uh, younger, I was struggling with the decision as to whether I should go back to school or if I should take another year out of school. I'd already taken one year out of school. It was a very productive and profitable year. I did Bible work in inner city Seattle, working with down and outers. I had to actually study the Bible for myself. Uh, it It was an amazing year. I had to study the Bible with someone about the Sabbath. And I said, wait a minute. Do I even believe in the Sabbath? I've been raised... I'm a fifth-generation, fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. My children are now sixth-generation. Their great-great-great-grandfather their great was a conference president, blah, blah, blah. But wait a minute. Do I believe this stuff? So when I had to study the Bible with someone else, I had to come face-to-face with whether or not I believed it. So I studied my Bible like a madman. It was a great year. Came out of that year, went back to school, and then at the end of that year, I thought, oh, no. Should I do this? Should I, should I go and finish my last year of, of college? My, I knew that my grandfather needed me. He needed help. Should I go and be with my grandfather, who was struggling physically and otherwise? As I prayed about it, I had a wise mentor quote this quote to me. My first duty to my grandfather was that of self-development. And looking back, it was a great decision that I made to go and finish my senior year at that that point. First duty to God and man is that of self-development. Number four, be patient. Be patient. Lots of young people want answers, and they want answers now. What does my future hold? You know, it's very interesting that God often, he waits to give us answers to the last minute often. Have you experienced that? Why does he do that? He does he is always testing us isn't he it develops faith when we don't have answers right away can you think of some examples in the bible of people who had been told what the plan was but they decided to say they said to themselves you know actually god is taking a little long i think he needs some help Can you think of some examples abraham, abraham number one example Abraham says, Okay, you promised the son, it's been years, nothing's happened, so I'm going to just help the process along in a little bit. I'm going to take Hagar. Not a good idea. What a mess. That was a mess. In fact, we're still dealing with the mess in today's world. Hey, somebody else? Saul? Did somebody say Saul? That's right, Saul. What did Saul do? He sacrificed right He sacrificed before. God's prophet, Samuel, had said, Wait till I come and Saul said, okay, okay, and the army's getting restless, and the Philistines are over there, and they look like they're coming, and he's like, I got to get this over with. Let's get this done. So he starts to sacrifice, and he's in the middle of the sacrifice, and Samuel shows up. Bad idea. Be patient. Somebody else who ran ahead of God in the scripture. Who? Jonah? Jonah? Yeah, he had his own ideas about what he wanted to do, huh? Judas is a great example. Judas thought that Jesus didn't get it. He just didn't, Jesus just didn't get it. Jesus needed some help. Getting up to the Messianic throne, with Judas at his right hand, Jesus needed some help, he thought. He needed some help, some PR help. He needed to be placed in a situation where he'd be forced to declare himself king, so Judas was helping him out. Okay? Patience. Patience. Anybody else? Jacob. Jacob. Jacob was not patient to know his future. Jacob was not patient, and he wanted to help God out. And he had, spurred on by his mother, the elaborate plan to deceive his father, that whole thing, and that created a mess. It's such a blessing when we're patient and we wait for God. It's such a blessing when we're patient. We wait for God to bring us a wife or a husband or a ministry or a career path. Be patient. I'm thinking of one other Bible example of somebody who, who was clearly called by God to do something, and he ran ahead and created a mess. Moses. That's exactly who I was thinking of. What did he do? He killed the Egyptian. He's going to be the guy to lead God's people out of Egypt. Hey, nothing's happening. Let me just let me deal with this right here. Boom. Killed the Egyptian. Bad idea. Bad idea. Remember the main point? Remember the main point? Those of you who have been here for the last couple sessions, what's the main point? That if you forget everything else about how to find God's will for your life, or your marriage, or your relationships, or your career, or your ministry. What is the one main thing that you weren't supposed to forget? Can somebody tell me? Before I can know God's will for my life, I have to know God's will, and what makes Him happy, and what pleases Him. And before I can know God's will, I need to know God. Right? I need to know God. And that takes time. That takes time. We need to be patient. It takes time to know God. To spend time with Him morning by morning. To know him, to know him through his word. Remember the main point. This takes time. Ministry of Healing, page 479. This is a bit of a longer quote, but it says, Many are unable to make definite plans for the future. Their life is unsettled. They cannot discern the outcome of affairs, and this often fills them with anxiety and unrest. Have you ever had that? Anxiety and unrest because you don't know what I'm supposed to do for my life. (laughs) Let us remember that the life of God's children in this world is a pilgrim life. We are not home, folks. We have not wisdom to plan our own lives. It is not for us to shape our future. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place we should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Wow. Too many in planning for a brilliant future make an utter failure. Let God plan for you. As a little child, trust to the guidance of him who will keep the feet of his saints. God never leads his children. You guys ready for this? This is one of my daughter's favorite quotes. I don't see her here. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. This takes some trust, doesn't it? So looking back, we would say, thank you, Lord, for leading me that way, even though I kicked against that. Thank you for that number five don't look around John turn your Bibles to the book of John okay just to review where we've been God has a place for us God given talents and abilities point in the direction of our career and ministry number three self development is top priority number four be patient don't run ahead of God let God plan for you number five don't look around. Remember what happened after Jesus ascended? The disciples said, let's go fishing. He said, okay, I'll go with you. So they jump in the boat, they go out, all night they catch nothing. Then it's early in the morning in the dim light, they hear a voice and they see a figure on the shore. And he says, do you have any fish? And they say, no. He said, throw the net on the right side. And they're like, "What is this? Guy? I don't know what this guy's saying. Okay, fine. And they pull in all these fish. And John says to Peter, that's the Lord. Pick up the story in verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, this is uh, John 21, verse 7, he put on his outer garment and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat. Fast forward, Jesus says in verse 12, Come and have breakfast. What a beautiful thing for Jesus to do. He fixes breakfast for his friends. Verse uh, 15, something happens very interesting, okay? All the disciples remembered acutely, that keenly, what had happened. Peter had denied Jesus, and they were unhappy with him, and, and Peter still felt terrible about it. So Jesus essentially goes through this process, and it's a little painful. Watch this, okay? So verse 15, so they had, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? In other words, do you love me more than all these other people sitting, standing here? He was referring to his boast. Though all should f- deny you, I will not. Remember that? So Jesus says this, and it's a little touchy. Okay? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16. And Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, do you, do you uh, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you clothed yourself and walked where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will will clothe you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So here Jesus reinstates Peter, even though it's a little painful, kind of like re-breaking a broken arm. He reinstates Peter into the disciples, and the disciples then uh, are watching all this happening. Something interesting then happens in verse 20, which I find a fascinating piece of scripture. So Peter gets up and starts following Jesus. Okay, So here's Jesus. He's walking this direction. Peter's following Jesus, walking. And then Peter does something that he did at a different time as well, which we'll talk about in a second. Verse 20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, following Who also had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? What about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. When was the other time that Peter got in trouble because he stopped looking at Jesus and looked around? walking on the water. Everything was fine. He was looking at Jesus. But when he looked back at his friends, and then he looked at the waves, there was trouble. Remember that? Same thing happens here. Okay? Peter is following Jesus. He's feeling pretty humble. But then he turns around, and he sees John. He says, but what about that guy? What about that guy? What are you going to have him do? I'm supposed to follow you, and da da What about him? And Jesus' response is so beautiful. What is that to you? That's None of your business. That's none of your business. You follow me. If I will that he da, da 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 da. If I will that he do this. If I will that he have this ministry. If I will that he uh, gets chosen as the leader of the such and such. What is that to you? You do what you're told, and you'll be happier because of it. Very important principle. Don't look around. Have you ever been tempted for that? Some people have callings that appear to be just amazing. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to be you know, David Asherick or something? I mean, it'd just be cool, wouldn't it? Well, you don't know, folks. There are difficulties and trials and temptations in every calling. So the the story is told of if all of us in the world were in a gigantic circle, and we could take all our troubles and put them in a large garbage bag We could go into the center of the circle, drop them, and pick up another one. We'd go back, open it up, and say, oh, give me what I just got rid of. I don't want this. (laughs) Right? Our own troubles are not as bad as you think when you think about what other people have. Don't look around. Don't look around. You follow me. We are unprofitable servants. What is that to you? You follow me. Let's go to number six. Number six may be one of the most important steps. If it's not the most important, it may be the most practical step. If you want practical advice in this seminar, this is it. Do the next thing. Do the next thing. If you're sitting at home wondering what to do and you're in college and you don't know, Lord, what is your will for my life? What is your will for my career and my ministry? And you're two assignments behind in chemistry. What do you need to do? You need to do your chemistry assignments. Do the next thing. Very important principle. This may sound undramatic, but it is really true. Remember what happened when Elisha the prophet, that prophet was a powerful prophet. Wow. But remember what he was doing when he was called? He was plowing. He was plowing. He was with the 12th yoke of oxen. Elijah comes along, doesn't break stride, throws his mantle over Elisha and keeps walking to see if what Elisha would do. And Elisha gets the significance. He got it. He's like, whoa, that was Elijah? He just showed up. He threw his mantle over me. He's calling me to be his assistant. That, that, was, that was understood in that culture. So he comes and he goes, runs after Elijah and says, yeah, yes, yes. Just let me go say goodbye to my family and we're good. He was plowing. He was doing what he was told. He was being a helpful probably a manager of the field at that point, for his family. Elijah was plowing when he was called to be one of the greatest prophets of all time. Moses was herding sheep. David was herding sheep, fighting off bears and lions. Samuel, when he was called, was serving in the temple. Matthew, when he was called, was doing what? Working for the IRS. The disciples, when they were called, they were fishing, right? If they weren't collecting taxes. Do the next thing. Do the next thing. Very important principle. Imagine, imagine yourself out on a dark night, on a really dark night, and you are in, you're on a lake with deep water, and there are stepping stones that are large enough for you to step on to take you all the way across this lake but it's pitch black. No stars, it's cloudy, no moon. And you have a flashlight, but this flashlight is exceedingly weak. The beam only reaches one step in front of you. Can you get across the lake? You absolutely can, but you can only do it one step at a time. So you always know the next step to take. I got it made. made. And I see the next one. Boom, okay, so I see the next one. If you stop and think about it, You'll panic. You'll say, I don't know the way to get across the lake. I I can only see 1% of my way across the lake. There's no way I'm going to get across the lake. Yes, there is. You always know just enough to take the next step, right? Do the next thing. Do the work that lies nearest. Education, page 267. This is a summary quote. How do I know God's will? How do I find God's will for my career and my ministry? Here it is. Education 267, to do our best in the work that lies nearest, to commit our ways to God, and to watch for the indications of his providence, these are rules that ensure safe guidance in the choice of an occupation. If you've been taught to to wash dishes in your home, you'll probably be a great fill-in-the-blank. You name it. If you're willing to do the next thing. If you're willing to wash dishes when dishes need to be washed, you'll probably be a great minister or a great leader or a great whatever. You fill in the blank. Folks, do, when we do the next thing, it's pleasing to God. It's God's will for us to wash dishes when it's time to wash dishes. Do the next thing. Oh, but couldn't I just shut my eyes and get a vision? Ah, it would be so much easier, wouldn't it? Lord, just tell me what to do right now. I just want a vision And I want to, you know, know what your will is. And I open my eyes, and there's still dishes to wash. (laughs) Do the next thing. Do the next thing. Do your best at the work that lies nearest. One of the principles that's related to this, by the way, in Scripture, is from the words of Jesus. He who is faithful in least is faithful also in much. He who is faithful in least is faithful also in much. If you're faithful at washing dishes, you're going to be faithful at... X, Y, Z, A, B, C, whatever, you fill in the blank, okay? Let's transition now to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. I'm just gonna review these six steps here. God has a place for us. God-given talents and abilities point in the direction of our career in ministry. Self-development is top priority. Be patient. Don't look around. Otherwise, it's trouble. And number six, do the next thing. Do the next thing. John, I'm sorry, put your finger in Mark chapter one. We're going to spend our time in Mark chapter one the rest of our time, but I want to go to John chapter eight. There's a verse in John chapter eight that is really good on this point. John chapter eight. We're going to look at that moment early in Jesus' ministry where he was faced with a decision about the direction of his career and his ministry. John chapter 8, verse 29. First, though, it says, this is the words of Jesus, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus always did the will of God. He followed the will of God for his career, for his ministry, for all of his relationships with people. He he followed the Father's will for his life. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Encouraging verse. Now, Mark chapter 1. Jesus came upon the scene in Galilee uh, with uh, drama, actually. He showed up and he started healing and casting out demons and doing amazing things. Um, look at verse 30. It says, well, let's start in verse 29. As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, this is the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, sorry, back at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the synagogue, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Okay? Verse 28, his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. Verse 29. When they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Okay, so they have a, a, a base house, a, ba- a ministry base in Capernaum. Verse 30, Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. They told him he came and healed her. Verse 32, we pick up the story. At evening, when the sun had set, right, people uh, knew that they kind of weren't supposed to be healed on Sabbath, and so as soon as the Sabbath is over, everybody rushed in so they could be healed. Verse 32, at evening, when the sun had set, They brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. The whole city. This place was packed, plus, plus, plus. The place is jammed. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Wow killer ministry. I mean, this is some killer ministry. We're talking about a receptive town, majorly receptive town. The whole city shows up. We're talking about out of batting a hundred, we've got a hundred. I mean, everybody's here. Ten out of ten. Massive success. So there's this progression of events in the town of Capernaum. Drama in Capernaum. Success in Capernaum. What does Jesus do? The next verse, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you! But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Okay, several things here. Let's, 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 let's look at this carefully. Okay, what did Jesus do? When, when did Jesus go and pray? Really early, a long while before daylight. Okay, so daylight over there is 6 a.m., so probably like 3 or 4 a.m. Jesus takes off, and he departed. Now, how far did he go? How far out, do you suppose? Well, it doesn't say exactly, but it says that everybody was looking for him, right? And then after a bit of searching, they found him. So he went out, but he didn't go so far that he couldn't be found because they did find him eventually, okay? So maybe he went a mile out or something, okay? So he went out, he went out to a solitary place. Why did he go to a solitary place? Because he didn't want to be interrupted, right? He couldn't get solitary time. He knew that they'd be at him immediately. So he, he, he got up, he stopped sleeping. If anybody here has a problem stopping sleeping, read about Jesus. He stopped sleeping, he got up, and he went and prayed and talked to his father. Now, uh, if you've ever seen a celebrity with cameramen following, paparazzi they call them, that was Jesus, super celebrity status. The photographers were chasing him around, they were looking for him, they couldn't find him. Ah, we found you, everybody's looking for you, okay? So he escaped. He escaped the, the interruptions. He escaped the paparazzi. Okay? He escaped the, the crowd. If you, had a, if, you had celebrity, if you had celebrity status, would you try to escape it? Okay, so his privacy was invaded. Can you imagine Jesus is praying there? They found him. His privacy was invaded. And they said to him, everyone is looking for you. In Luke's version, we don't have time to go there right now because we're going to be out of time soon. In Luke's version, the Bible says that the crowd, when they found him, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They tried to keep him from leaving them. So here are these people saying, no, no, stay, stay. I know what you need to do, Jesus. You need to stay here. Okay, so they're trying to say, you've got to stay here and minister. So people, humans with limited vision, tried to control Jesus' movements. But Jesus would not permit this. He was controlled by a higher source. This reminds me that, um, of when Jesus... Uh, said to Peter, uh, said to the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and he's going to be crucified and he'll rise the third day. And Peter took him aside and the Bible says he rebuked him. Remember that? Ever tried to rebuke God? It's not a good idea. What was he thinking? You know know what the Bible says actually? The Bible says that Jesus turned, he was looking at Peter, the Bible says that that Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and said, get behind me, Satan. He's, He's talking to Peter, but he looked at the disciples as if to emphasize I'm saying this to you, Peter, in the, in the, so that everybody else can hear it. It's pretty hardcore. Don't try to interfere when Jesus wants to do something. So here are these people. Try to keep, them from, keep him from leaving them. They, and perhaps they weren't evil. They were just trying to dissuade Jesus of his, of his plan. They thought that they knew better. And, of course, these people who tried to dissuade him from moving on, they had mixed motives. Perhaps they had a relative that they wanted Jesus to heal. Or perhaps they just wanted him to proclaim himself king right away. We often have mixed motives when we have agendas. When we have agendas for what's, what to do. So, very interesting now. Let's go to verse 38. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. Think about this. If we were to make a pro and con list... What would you say the pros are for staying in Capernaum? Jesus says to himself, should I stay in Capernaum or should I go to Bethsaida or Tiberias or wherever the next town is? Number one, there's a large audience. Huge success. Number two, they're receptive. I mean, they're not only coming out, they're eating up everything that I'm teaching. Number three, they're asking me to stay, they're begging me to stay. Number four, there is ministry momentum. Massive mo, major momentum. Number five, I can preach and teach freely without any opposition. Okay, There's no record of opposition. You know, The, 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 the people in Capernaum, the, the rabbis, were just throwing themselves in, in, the, in front of Jesus. Number six, there's a track record. There has been, over the last few days, a track record of successful ministry. It's not just that I have a request to preach and the potential for a successful ministry. I've already preached and taught and ministered, and it's been tremendously successful. There's even a ministry base at Peter's house. I mean, it's clear Jesus needs to stay at Capernaum, doesn't it? Doesn't he? And Peter's mother-in-law is actually probably feeding them. The Bible says that she waited on them. I mean, there's even food, guys. Amen. It's clear. You got to stay in Capernaum, right? Yeah. Jesus prays and says, no, I'm ditching all of that. I'm ditching all of that. And I'm choosing to go somewhere else. I find that really interesting. Would you turn away an entire town say, that's saying to you, please minister to me? I wouldn't. How did Jesus know that? When I was a young man, I, was, I just finished two years of college. I just finished two years of college and uh, to make a long story short, my my head was spinning. I didn't know what was what. There were lots of doubts. I had lots of doubts. And I had struggled at college with some of the, the, the classes and those kinds of things, challenges. I knew I needed to take a year off to do active personal ministry. I needed to do some kind of mission work. And I was working at summer camp that summer, and I got the call of all calls. My former pastor, who is the epitome of cool... I mean, it's, all the girls had a crush on him. I mean, he was married. But, you know, I was just like, this guy is so cool. And he led a Bible study in the book of John, and I, that he led me to Christ. It was just, I mean, this guy called me, and he said, I'd like you to be the youth pastor under me for a year. And I was like, that is, that's amazing. I prayed about it, surfaced prayers, and said yes. And the biggest thing was that it was drama. You know, I was heavily into drama. He wanted me to lead out in this whole drama thing. It was a a large academy. And I told him yes, and I was miserable. I hadn't really prayed. I was working security at Camp Meeting, and I remember I was operating this gate. And, you know, it's kind of mindless work. It was kind of fun. But I would open this gate as a fire lane when security vehicles would come through or whatever. And I remember I was manning this gate, and this young man comes up to me. He's now the international director for Adventist Frontier Missions. And he came up to me, really nice, super nice guy. Just, I mean, he's friends. He has no enemies. This guy's super nice. He comes up to me and he says, hey, Bill, you got to join our Bible work team next year. And I was like, and in my head, I was like, no, that's exactly what I don't want to do. Those people were a little weird. I just had this, uh, oh, it was just, oh, I didn't want to do this so I was courteous to him or whatever, and I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And I had this amazing, cool job over here. And then I had this other thing over here, and it was just pain and agony for days. And we're getting up early one morning, I got up at 4 a.m., took off way out into the clear cut. They had, this is in Washington State, and the lumber company had come, come through and cut all the trees down in the forest past a certain pro- property line. I walked, hiked all the way out there, got right to the edge of the clear cut, sat there in the the semi-darkness and watched the sun rise on Mount Rainier. And I said with tears, I said, Okay, Lord, I know you've been calling me to do this. I give up. And I went and I called that pastor back. And he was not happy. But I had unloaded a burden because I knew what God wanted me to do. When I went to this Bible work group a few weeks later, I landed. The guy picked me up at the airport. He had a Desire of Ages. He was waving. He'd never met me. and He's like, Bill, Bill. He's waving a Desire of Ages. We connected that way. And on the way down, we had an hour drive on the way down to our place where we're staying. All he wanted to do was talk about Jesus. And after a few hours of being there, I realized that these people are serious about God. And all they wanted to do was talk about the Lord. And I loved God. I loved Jesus. And I liked talking about Him. And after a very short amount of time, I loved it. It was amazing. And that year totally changed my life. I had every morning, all all morning, free, every morning. I gorged myself with Bible study. I read the Spirit of Prophecy. I studied my Bible like a madman. I washed my mind out of those, those doubts out of my mind. It was just what I needed. And I went out in the afternoons and studied the Bible with people. And I knocked on doors. Oh, it was such a good experience. That year changed my life. That cool pastor wound up committing adultery with one of the ladies. Terrible story. I see that now. I didn't see that then, did I? So here's Jesus in Capernaum, going out a long while before daylight, saying, what should I do? What should I do? And he made the decision that did not seem It seemed obvious what he should do. Any marketing firm would tell Jesus, obviously, he's got to stay there. It's very highly productive. Jesus went went, went out into the wilderness and prayed. His conclusion was very different from the people around him. It was a very different conclusion. Why? Jesus had, and we don't have time to look at all these scriptures because we're almost out of time, but one of my favorite messianic prophecies is Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 3, the Bible says that he will not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. In other words, the ostensible reasons, the outside evidence, he sees beyond that. He sees beyond what's just out there, beyond the, the, the externals. He sees the real thing. Jesus could see beyond his present right-now experience to the bigger picture, and he he also knew all those Messianic prophecies, including Isaiah chapter 9, which says, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So Jesus knew that he was not supposed to confine his ministry to one little town. In fact, I wonder if Jesus had the scroll of Isaiah chapter 9 with him out that morning, or maybe he just quoted it to himself because he had it memorized. Isaiah chapter 9, where it says that all of Galilee is going to be blessed by the Messiah's ministry. So after praying, he said, no, he said, I must go to the next town. I know my purpose, the purpose for which I was sent. Isn't that what it says in Mark chapter 1? He says, no, we must go to the other towns also, because for this purpose, I was sent. That is the reason Jesus gave for his decision, which seemed like it was way out, seemed like it was crazy, seemed like it wasn't appropriate, seemed like it didn't fit. Jesus knew his purpose. Do you know your purpose? Do you know your purpose? How do I know my purpose? The same way, right? Revelation chapter 14, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Jesus went out, the book of Mark says, he went out to all the places around Galilee. I want us to look at one more verse, which to me is conclusive. Jesus knew something that the disciples and the rest of them didn't. And I need to find where it is. I have it in my notes because it's not a common verse. I don't find it in my notes. I want to say it's Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to quote this verse because I'm about out of time. Uh, I have it in my notes, and again, I can't seem to locate it. It's talking about the what was really happening, what was really happening that no one could see. There it is, Matthew chapter 11. Turn your Bibles to that. This is an amazing verse, Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus is talk talking about what was really going on behind the scenes. Okay. Why did he make this crazy decision in Mark chapter one, which seemed obvious what he should do, but he did something else. Mark chapter 11 verse 21, 11 verse 21. Matthew, did I say Mark? Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Woe! So Capernaum really wasn't that receptive. It just looked like it. See, God knows stuff we don't know. Do you see that? It looked like Capernaum was receptive. They probably just wanted the Messiah to kill the Romans. That's probably all they were interested in. Sodom would have repented, Jesus says, if those same miracles had been done in Sodom. So it looked like that's what Jesus should do. But in fact, that wasn't the case. I have one more Ellen White quote to share with you, and then we're done. Know your purpose, know your purpose. Jesus says, I must go to the other cities also, because for this reason, this purpose, I was sent. Education 267. Now, this is something you don't need to pray about. You don't need to pray about this, okay? Ah, that's not it. Education 262, thank you, 262. Success in any line demands a definite aim. He would achieve true success in life, must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of his endeavor. Such an aim is set before the youth of today. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. It opens a field of effort to everyone whose heart Christ has touched. That is our purpose. That is our purpose. We don't need to pray about that one. I challenge you folks to adopt this aim. It is God's will. It pleases Him and whatever you wind up doing, and whoever you wind up marrying, and whatever career and ministry path you take, this is God's will for your life. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us, and thank you for all the, the stories in Scripture which talk about how you lead us and guide us, how you led sinful men, and how those guys ran ahead of you and created problems, and how merciful you are, how patient you are with us when we do the same. Thank you for that. But I ask now that those of us, those in the hearing, within the hearing of my voice will indeed commit to following your will, whatever that costs. Bless them and give them joy in the process. Give them, give them um, hearts that are satisfied with you. Bless us now as we go to these baptisms. Thank you for the people who are getting baptized. Praise your name for them. So be with us now the rest of this evening. In the name of Jesus, I ask you to be. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.